This is Steve Becker. I served 26 years as a district judge in Reno County, Kansas, and that was followed by three terms in the Kansas legislature. My name's Beth White. I spent almost a decade in the criminal justice system, helping people reintegrate into society after being incarcerated. And this is Cleared. Hey, why don't you remind our listeners um, where you obtained your collegiate degree? The universe, the University of Kansas. And where is that located? Lawrence, Kansas. Oh my gosh, have they been in the news recently? You no, know, I think they have. I think last night. I last think so. night, I it think was you're rock right. chalk, baby. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, they. Uh, it was the largest comeback by a national champion. Um, what an exciting game. The KU Jayhawks are the national basketball champions. That is so sweet. Yep. I got a call from my mom and dad at 10.38, 10.39, far past everybody's bedtime with a very real offer to drive to Mass Street last night that I nearly took up with a promise of Thai Siam food, which <laughs> I think I think I'm okay I didn't take up. I don't know. I'm too old now, but it would have been worth the experience, I feel. Mass Street being the uh, main drag in downtown Lawrence, Kansas, uh, we were there the last time they won. And I think that was 2008. Yep. I, w I attended school there the last time we won a national championship. That was the biggest party I ever attended. Yep. On Mass Street. Yep. Wow. Spe speaking of crimes, I think we saw a few when we were on Mass Street that time. Yeah, but it was pretty peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get too bad when everybody's in such a good mood. No, very true. But anyway, congratulations to the Kansas Jayhawks. Yes. You have provided us with so much excitement. Yes, uh, very proud Jayhawk here. Okay, I guess that's the headline that's in, um, in the front of my mind today. But we have other headlines dealing with exonerations. Um, on March 22, two brothers in Michigan were exonerated of a 1997 murder conviction. And one of the things that makes this, I think, makes this so interesting and, 
and uh, makes it even better <laughs> if you can have an average exoneration. There's something about this one that, in my view, um, tops it. Tops it. Okay, these uh, these are the organizations that collaborated to obtain this exoneration of George De Jesus and Melvin De Jesus. The Mich- Michigan Department of Attorney General's Conviction Integrity Unit, the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office, the Oakland County Sheriff's Office, the Cooley Law School Innocence Project, and the University of Michigan Innocence Project. Wow. What what is so interesting is that those that the organizations on both sides of the table uh, came together, joined hands, and uh, to benefit these two uh, wrongly convicted brothers. And uh, that sounds like steps in the right direction. Oh man, that's that's almost a kumbaya moment. Yeah, can you imagine their family? Their mom, their dad, their family members, both brothers coming home at once. Yeah. Wow. And after being, they were in prison nearly 25 years uh, for something they didn't do. Of course, that's what our podcast is all about. Okay. Leading into this episode's profile, um, Beth, when you... Uh, reveal to me the name of the individual who we'll be talking about this uh, this episode. I the first thing I noticed was that his birthday and my birthday are two weeks apart. Mm-hmm. Two weeks, and that immediately in my mind sent me back to <laughs> my younger days and uh, in the late 1960s and the 19 early 1970s I was on college campuses and those few years are the most influential years in my life I was truly molded um oh just saying from like 1968 to 1972 I think that is what molded my thinking and uh, it, it was such an important time to me, and it was an important time to our um, to our individual for this broadcast. So, the, I wanted to just lay a little foundation before Beth gets into uh, gets into his story. Uh, and I, 1968 was a crazy year for our country. I hear a lot of talk now about how divided our country is and uh, but when I hear that uh, my mind always goes back to 1968 and I want to remind some of you um, what happened in that one particular year and also maybe educate some of you who don't know what happened in 1968. Well, I think it's interesting, just in a few years past, I remember you and me having this very same conversation and me asking you, has it ever been this bad? And you and I having this exact conversation. I think about this period of time so much. Maybe that's just uh, (laughs) due to my aging, Beth. Uh, But just a very brief profile of 1968. President Lyndon Johnson, I can remember his announcement 
that he was winding down the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, which protesters had been screaming for. But in the same breath, we learned a few days later that as he was giving that national speech, he was expanding bombing into Cambodia. He was, in fact, expanding the Vietnam War rather than winding it down. Martin Luther King Jr., a peaceful revolutionary, was assassinated in 1968. Robert Kennedy assassinated in 1968. Students were protesting worldwide as far as the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive by the North Vietnam the Tet Offensive by the North Vietnam Army and the Viet Cong began. And also in 1968, we had the tragedy, uh, what is referred to as the My Lai Massacre, where U.S. soldiers uh, massacred men, women, and children in a small village in Vietnam. Another big point of 1968 was the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and there was as much chaos and circus inside the convention center and as on the streets outside, all the protesting going on. And that event led to the sensational trial of the Chicago, originally the Chicago 8, but then it became known as the Chicago 7, just a circus of a trial in the federal court. It's, that's a story all, all by itself. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to explain that in 1968, we had the peace movement. We had a civil rights movement. We had the black power movement. We had this hippie movement where all of us became familiar with the intersection of hate and Ashbury in San Francisco. We had the 1968 Olympics in Mexico where a gold medalist and a bronze medalist, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, during the medal center, those were United States athletes, during the uh, medal ceremony, they stood with a black gloved fist up in the air during the national anthem. And it, it just a huge uh, symbol or a huge capsule, that photograph of those two in 1968. That's what kind of culture, that's what our society was going through. and uh, A lot of civil unrest. A lot of civil unrest. And our individual for our episode today was a part of it. <laughs> okay, with that foundation, um, with that context, Beth, why don't you introduce us? That was wonderful foreshadowing because I was actually going to call on you for a lot of that here in a minute, which I still may, so... Thank you for that. Um, our individual today is Elmer Geronimo Pratt. I first became aware of Geronimo Pratt's story when I was listening to Believe It or Not, another podcast, and it was profiling a 1971 burglary of a Pennsylvania FBI field office where individuals stole thousands and thousands of FBI documents and later disseminated them to newspapers across the nation. One of them, the Washington Post, ended up publishing a good amount of those documents. The documents ended up portraying the FBI 
under J. Edgar Hoover, obviously the director, in not so great of light. Essentially, they were running a program known as COINTEL, uh, where they were actively collecting data on anyone that J. Edgar Hoover believed to be enemies of the state. And it's essentially a lot of the people that you just named, anybody that was anti-war, a lot of the student organizations, uh, a lot of the black pride movements, the Black Panthers, a lot of those groups, they were illegally wiretapping, illegally searching. They they were running uh, movements such as Black and driving, where they were stopping individuals just because they were Black and driving and searching the vehicles. And the documents that were recovered, I say recovered, they were stolen from this FBI office, outlined all of these policies that the FBI had at the time. So those documents published by the Washington Post ended up causing a congressional hearing, which ended up bringing out all of this information and ended up inciting a whole bunch of policy change. So from that podcast, learning all that stuff is where Geronimo Pratt's name came up because he was very much wrapped up into this movement because he was a victim of all of this stuff because... And and we've... We've addressed this to some extent in our previous episodes where not at the national level, but at the local level where law enforcement chooses their target and then makes the case. They don't investigate a case and then uh, the investigation leads to a suspect. They target someone as a suspect and then do an investigation to support that conclusion. Yeah, this is a whole nother level. This is like a yes. whole nother yes. level. So this podcast just very briefly mentioned him as one of the victims of this whole movement that was done by the FBI, and I just kind of deep-dived into it. So Geronimo Pratt was a Louisiana boy born in the South. He was one of seven children, a big family, He said that he never realized he was poor because he had so much love. He had such a wonderful childhood. His siblings were all close. His family, his mom and dad were all loving. They had a really good childhood. He grew up an athlete. His senior year in high school, he was the star quarterback. He was the it guy. Very charismatic, very intelligent. That alone tells me that he's different than many of our exonerees that we've profiled. Yeah. Yes. Coming from that kind of household. Good family, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, So, I mean, very out of the gate, very outgoing, obvious leadership. He He was amazing. From high school, he enlisted into the Army. He ended up doing two tours in Vietnam, three years in the military. He returned to sergeant. A lot of the research I did, there's a lot of just different information about how decorated he was. For the most part, from what I can discern, 55 combat jumps, silver star, bronze star, soldier's medal, air medal, multiple purple hearts. I mean, by all accounts, he was a very, very well decorated 
by all accounts, wonderful war hero returned. He used his GI Bill and he went to LA and he enrolled in a high potential program at UCLA studying political science. He was going somewhere. He was charismatic. He was intelligent. He was going somewhere. In the very early months at his time at UCLA, he witnessed multiple acts of police brutality and race violence. And these race violence are what initially inspired him to join the the Black Panthers. And what you had kind of touched on to begin with, you need to keep in mind with Geronimo Pratt, he grew up in the area of racial injustice. I mean, think church bombings, innocent children being murdered. This shaped his worldview. This, this is what he grew up in. This is what inspired him to make a difference. And unlike so many people, he was charismatic. He was vocal. He had the presence to make a difference and he would have made a difference and he did make a difference. So he joined the Black Panthers while he was at UCLA studying political science. Due to his leadership expertise that he learned in the Army and his charisma, he very quickly rose the ranks and became the leader of the L.A. branch of the Black Panthers. And so that's where we're going to leave him when the event that was going to change the course of his life occurred. In December 1968, Carolyn Olson, a local teacher, and her husband, Kenneth, were playing tennis in Santa Monica around 8 p.m. when two young black men approached them, demanding money. Carolyn handed the boys her purse. They took her purse and told the two to lay on the ground. Kenneth was shot five times, and Carolyn was shot twice. Kenneth survived the attack, and Carolyn ended up dying 11 days later. The attackers ended up getting away with maybe $18 total. Geronimo Pratt would be arrested for that crime two years later. Now, on to the trial. I'm not going to get into the evidence because, honestly, there's not a whole lot. (laughs) So we're just going to go straight to the trial. The prosecution relied on two main witnesses, the first being Kenneth Olson. He was the surviving victim, the widow. He identified Pratt at trial. The second was Julius Butler. He also was a Marine sergeant, a former L.A. County Sheriff deputy, and also a former hairstylist named Mr. Julio. He was responsible for Pratt's arrest. He was also a former Black Panther Party member. He testified that Pratt told him that he committed the murders. So, a little background on Julius Butler. Butler joined the Panthers before Geronimo Pratt in around 1968. He also was very intelligent, very smart. He also had good leadership skills too, being in the military. He also quickly rose the ranks, becoming the Southern California security chief. However, when Geronimo Pratt joined the Panthers, he rose faster and became the LA leader of the Black Panthers. When Geronimo Pratt became the leader, This cut in to Julius Butler's territory. Butler didn't like that. He was pissed. He wasn't only pissed that Pratt was the leader taking over his territory. He was pissed at the Black Panthers. And you know what he did? He went to the FBI and started giving the FBI information about the Black Panthers. Pratt found out about that and kicked out Butler. Well... Butler didn't like that. So shortly after being ousted from the Black Panthers, Butler writes a letter saying that Geronimo Pratt was the one who killed Carolyn Olson. Are you following me? Does that make sense? I'm, I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you. So Julius Butler writes a letter saying Geronimo Pratt is the one who committed the murder of Carolyn Olson and then gives it to the FBI. 
And that's what got Geronimo Pratt arrested. That was their evidence against Pratt. That was what led to this whole trial. That and Kenneth Olson saying that he was the one identifying mid-trial. So we're at trial. That's the prosecution's witnesses. Now, for Geronimo Pratt, he has a little-known attorney. You may you may have heard of him, Johnny Cochran Jr. Are you familiar with him? I think he's represented a few high-profile yeah. defendants. Young Johnny Cochran Jr. This is before anything you've probably heard of him. And Johnny Cochran Jr., pre what you've known him for, felt like he was going to win the case. And you know why? Because Geronimo Pratt was 350 miles away in Oakland, California at a Black Panther meeting. Alibi. Yeah. Yeah. So 350 miles away from the crime, you think that would work. Little Johnny Cochran's going to walk this guy. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not the case. After a 10-day deliberation, despite the alibi being 350 miles away, Geronimo Pratt is convicted of first-degree murder, armed robbery, felony assault, and in July 1972 is sentenced to 25 years to life. And he's immediately taken into the custody of the DOC and transported. Now, because Pratt is so influential and powerful with the Black Power Panther movement, and this is an expert, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take this. This is a book written by Jack Olson. It's from a biography about Geronimo Pratt called The Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. This is actually taken from that. I'm gonna read it directly just to show you how awful and tragic it was. It says, Pratt was thrown into solitary confinement, his only toilet facilities, a hole in the floor that routinely backed up. Nursing old shrapnel injuries permitted only three hours of daylight per day. He was routinely beaten by guards, drugged, shunted from one dungeon to other, set up for midnight assassinations by other inmates and falsely accused of a laundry list of prison crimes from attempted murder, murder of guards to inciting riots to planning mass escapes to masterminding the kidnapping of heiress Patty Hearst. So that was his life. He was a huge target. Huge. And we're going to get into it here in a second. So not only that, the prison officials felt that he was so dangerous that he would seize control of the entire prison. So they cut off con- contact for Geronimo from the entire outside world. They were not allowing him any kind of contact with anybody outside of his attorneys. And they immediately put him in solitary confinement. He said he was celled next to Charles Manson and his only human interaction other than his attorneys was the prison guards, which obviously was not a positive or pleasant interaction. And that eventually he turned to the insects in his cells, specifically the ants as his companions, to maintain his sanity. Cochran eventually hooked up with a fellow law student, Stuart Hanlon, who convinced a U.S. District Court judge to order prison officials to remove Pratt from isolation and have him placed in general population, citing the horrific conditions of the isolation. So after eight years, he was removed from solitary confinement and put in general population. That unfortunately, is Pratt's life in prison. Okay, so they're obviously making a really big deal about Geronimo Pratt, right? Yes. Obviously, he's intelligent, he's smart, he's a good leader, but does he need to be cut out from the entire outside world? He's a dissident. Obviously. With a target. Yes. Let's get back to that target. So we talked about that COINTELPRO, all those documents that were stolen from the FBI, 
correct? Those documents outlined an illegal and secret service program that targeted Americans. And they also outlined the illegal and dirty tricks and smear tactics that the FBI used. The wording in the documents made clear that the agents were to harass and document the movements of the black population, something that was familiar to Pratt and everybody else in the Black Panthers at the time frame. Prior to his arrest, the only other law enforcement contact that Pratt had was when he was 17 years old when he threw a Coke bottle at a high school. Documents were found during the congressional hearing that specifically outlined that they wanted Pratt, air quote, neutralized. Johnny Cochran, his original lawyer, sticked with them the entire time. He would talk about when he was young, he was naive when he represented Geronimo Pratt and how Pratt would say stuff about how they were out to get him and he didn't understand what he meant when he said they were out to get him. It was only later that he understood that it was the FBI, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the L.A. District Attorney that were out to get him. He didn't realize that he was fighting the entire government. Part of the documents found that J. Edgar Hoover wanted Pratt neutralized, using the words, air quote, neutralized. Johnny Cochran and fellow attorney Stuart Hanlon never gave up on Pratt. They fought for him continuously throughout the years, despite Pratt being deemed a dangerous revolutionary and the thought that he should be caged for life. A federal magistrate at one point consulted the FBI, saying that he would get something done. This resulted in a five-year lap with nothing The L.A. district attorney promised a full review of the case, but after three years, nothing was produced. Parole boards consistently denied his parole due to the high likelihood that he'd kill again or would ferment a bloody revolution. Judges ducked the cases constantly because of the high political nature, and once an appellate court justice walked off the bench without any explanation. Nobody wanted anything to do with this case because of how politically motivated it was. Attorney Stuart Hanlon routinely risked being jailed or for contempt of court because of how passionate he was. Johnny Cochran, shortly after being appointed to the district attorney's office, routinely risked losing his newly appointed DA job after being very vocal about his feelings about Pratt being railroaded. Just when they thought they were at the end of the road and about to give up hope for Pratt, in walked none other than the one, the only, the great Jim McCloskey and Centurion Ministries. We're friends with Jim. We are. We are friends with Jim We've McCloskey. We've all heard from Jim McCloskey, the wonderful Jim McCloskey. So some 23 years after Mr. Pratt's been incarcerated, Centurion Ministries gets involved. In 1992, Pratt received help from Centurion Ministries. Jim worked the case for almost five years. In those five years, Jim personally traveled over 120,000 miles investigating leads on the case. The issues that were found, obviously, the prosecution failed to turn over the evidence that Butler was an FBI informant. They lied about it at trial. Julius Butler denied it at trial. The FBI denied it. Everybody denied it. Nobody was aware of it other than the FBI and the DA. Kenneth Olson, the one who ID'd Mr. Pratt, he he had previously ID'd somebody else shortly after the crime. Mr. Pratt or his defense wasn't made aware of that. The FBI also failed to turn over those illegal wiretaps that they had obtained, which established that Pratt was, in fact, at Oakland during the time the crime took place. Wait, let, let me interrupt, Beth. So there was evidence 
there existing was. at trial, although not presented at trial. The FBI had documents showing that Geronimo Pratt's alibi was valid. Correct. There have been, well, throughout our episodes, we identify the causes of wrongful convictions. And the highest cause, or the greatest cause, Brady, is law enforcement or prosecutorial misconduct. And in that category, I think the highest specific cause is failing to turn over to the defense evidence that is exculpatory to the defendant, meaning it would be favorable favorable to the defendant. They are required to do that um, by a Supreme Court ruling. So uh, we, we talk about that on almost every episode. One of the documentaries I watched talked about how the FBI claimed to have misplaced the wiretap specifically where Mr. Pratt was in Oakland calling somebody else from somewhere else. And the person being interviewed said it's the only time they've ever, ever witnessed FBI misplacing wiretaps. And it was just this one singular incident that would have proved Pratt's alibi. So there's that. So on May 29th, 1997, a judge finally granted Geronimo a new trial. On June 10th of that same year, Pratt was released on a $25,000 bond. And finally, February 1999, the prosecution announced that they were dismissing all charges. Now, keep in mind, June 97 to February 1999, that year, those year gaps. In 97, they had a former FBI agent that was willing to testify that Geronimo Pratt was actually in Oakland. So in 97, they had somebody saying that an FBI agent willing to say that Geronimo Pratt was 350 miles away, but they did not dismiss charges until 99. So just keep that in mind. In 1999, when asked about whether or not he was bitter about the time that he lost, he said, I don't think bitterness has a place. I'm more understanding. Understanding doesn't leave any room for bitterness or anger. Unfortunately, Geronimo died from a heart attack in June 2011 in a small village in Tanzania where he lived with his wife Ashanti and their child. Geronimo experienced a lot of heartache during his life. When he was originally arrested, his first wife, Chandra, also was killed and murdered. She was eight months pregnant. They found her body had been dumped on an L.A. freeway. The FBI, I think, originally told her that was as a result of some sort of Black Panther issues or turmoil within the Black Panthers. There was a lot of turmoil and heartache that he suffered at the expense of the FBI and all of the civil unrest. In total, he lost 27 years of his life to wrongful conviction he voluntarily served three years of his life in the military. So that's 30 years of his life. He was on this earth for 63 years. 30 years of that was either spent volunteering in the military or wrongfully convicted. So he was given 30 years of his life that he was able to do with what he chose. And we spent a lot of time talking about how intelligent and charismatic and, and wonderful he was. And it's just, it's really a shame for people like him to wonder what would have happened 
what could have happened, the change he could have made if it wasn't stifled by other people. That That's sad to think about. Just a few closing notes. Again, we talked about Johnny Cochran. Obviously, his fame came from defending O.J. Simpson. He did an interview with GQ where he said, the Pratt case has taught me and a lot of other lawyers never to accept the official version of an event. Never accept a lab report, a forensic finding. Never take so-called expert testimony at face value. As a result, I see things I never saw before. Ask questions I never asked before. The ordeal of Geronimo, Geronimo Pratt, Cochran admits, made me a better lawyer. And then one final thought from Cochran I think is kind of interesting. He remembers the day Pratt was freed as the best day in his long career and insists that he would rather be deemed by this case rather than Simpson. If you want to talk about my career, this case defines me, Geronimo Pratt, and that's very important to me. This is the story they ought to hear. That of Geronimo Pratt. Wonderful, Beth. So sad. What a great story. What a great story. That One of those uh, quotes you used in closing from Johnny Cochran about never trust the lab reports, never trust the all that, mm-hmm. um, reminds me of a, a bumper sticker <laughs> a lawyer friend of mine has on his car, and it reads, trust in God, everybody else cross-examined. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, it is a sad story. It has a beautiful exoneration in it, but still, um, it extinguished the light that for sure that Geronimo carried, and that that light could have been very very bright, but it certainly got extinguished uh, by the government, and uh, because uh, he was an activist, because he was dissident. Yeah, a beautiful exoneration, but still sad. He was exonerated when he was 50, and he died when he was 63. So he had 13 years of freedom once he was released. And I guess I should say it's believed that Larry Hatter and Herbert Swilly, they're both deceased, but it's believed that those are the two that committed Carolyn Olson's murder, although they were never charged or convicted, but they're the ones who believed to have committed the murder. And then Geronimo's wife that was murdered when he was arrested, that was never seriously investigated. And since then, it's believed to have no ties to the Black Panther. That's just something that was told to him. So it was hard doing the research to know that, again, it's one of these stories. It's hard to know that this is our history. This is our government's history. This isn't made up. This really happened. Our government did this. This is who we are. It's hard reading. It's hard reading about that. And it's important to know. It's important to know going forward. It's important to know so we don't repeat it. It, it, It's just, it's hard. And it's sad. At one point during your story, Beth, you mentioned that the FBI, as part of their conspiracy against Geronimo Pratt, uh, while he was in prison, um, started a rumor or put put out there that he was going to take over the prison, yeah. that he would take control of the prison uh, in order, a way in to justify his segregation. That reminded me of a, uh, something that um, I watched recently. As at the beginning of this episode, uh, you could probably tell that my mind spends 
<laughs> my mind goes to the late 60s and early 70s a lot. I think about that time a lot. And I recently watched, just a few, maybe last week, I watched a documentary called Attica, and it is about the Attica prison riot, and it is a powerful, powerful documentary. I encourage everyone to watch it. Um, I'm not going to give you too many details because it would be a spoiler, but it's another case where the national headlines come from the government. What the government was doing and what was happening there, national headlines. And I remember I was in college during this Attica prison riot. It, it was a five-day event, and I remember it happening. I remember following the news. Anyway, the headlines that came out of the government were lies. They, they lied to us. And uh, several days later, the truth made the headlines. And uh, yeah, that's, well, you said it's sad. I get angry. Yeah. Well, and I had a hard time with this because there's so much more I want to say. There's so much more about the FBI raid and the documents that were released, but I really, I didn't want to lose Geronimo's story in it. And I hope I did not. So um, the podcast that I listened to where it inspired Geronimo's telling of this story was Criminal. The episode was Robbing the FBI. Um, so if you want to hear more about that, I suggest you listen to it. It's very well done. Um, that tells a lot more about the process, what they found, and more about uh, COINTELPRO, all the operation and what came from that. Um, do you have anything else, Dad? Great story, Beth. Thank, Thank you, you for all the research. Thank you again, Jim McCloskey, for being our superhero. <laughs> that he is. I, uh, of all the pictures we have of him, and we've gotten to know him, I don't think he wears a cape. <laughs> he but should. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of putting one on him. He should. I didn't even know he was involved in this. I'm, I called down, like, do you know who got Geronimo? He's like, Jim? <laughs> like, yeah, that's crazy. It um, is. If you want to reach us, we're Cleared Pod on Instagram or Cleared Podcasts on Facebook. Please, any suggestions, concerns, thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thank you. Thank you.